So supply is coming back online. Demand is decreasing because of central bank tightening. So that equilibrium, I think, is going to happen a lot sooner than people realize. Welcome to ETF Market Insights, a podcast where some of Canada's leading investment experts guide you through the world of exchange-traded funds. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hi, and welcome to the BMO ETF's Market Insights podcast. Today, we're going to be covering our quarterly portfolio strategy report. My name is Erica Toth, and I'm a director of ETF distribution at BMO ETFs, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by my colleague, Alfred Lee, who's director, portfolio manager, and investment strategist. Over this past summer, we marked 10 years that Alfred's been writing our quarterly ETF strategy report. This report features a balanced ETF model that's become a go-to resource for advisors, portfolio managers, and investors alike. His fixed income strategy report, which is a pure fixed income model, he has been running that one for five years now. So each quarter, Alfred and I record this podcast with the goal of providing you with our current views on portfolio construction across the different asset classes. We try to bring that quarterly strategy piece alive for you in a podcast format, all in about 20 minutes time. So Alfred, inflation continues to be persistent with both the recent US and Canadian CPI coming in higher than expected. Do you think that this fight against inflation is proving more difficult than we originally anticipated? I think that's the million dollar question that everybody has you know, on top of their minds right now. But I would say yes and no. I know that's sitting on the fence a little bit, but I think there are parts of the economy that are exhibiting what I would say is price stickiness at, at this standpoint. I mean, when you look at inflation, I think it's really the service sector that is being a little bit more resilient than what we're seeing in the good space. So Part of this will cool, I think. You know, I think when you look at you know hospitality and travel, for example, I think there's a lot of pent up demand where you know over the last two years, because we've been locked up because of COVID, people have been you know trying to get out there, trying to travel, get it out of their system. Also, you know, going out to the favorite restaurants and whatnot. But I think that eventually will fizzle out over the next five to six months. Um, when you look at hotel prices, they are getting pretty outrageous at this point. Um, But I think over the next couple of months, as people start to become a little bit more concerned about the economy, they probably will dial back their spending. But it's certain parts of the services aspect that I think are pretty sticky, right? So when you look at, you know, mortgage payments, for example, that's, you know, a big part of the CPI basket in the US. But when you think about, you know, if you bought a $1.5 million home, and you need to refinance that mortgage at this point, at a higher rate, the likelihood is that payment's going to go up rather than down, which I don't think is reflective of the current inflationary scenario right now. But you know, when you look at the good space, I think there's a lot of positive signs. There's a lot of leading indicators. So you know, the cargo shipping rates I always talk about, that's back to pre-COVID levels at this point. But also when I look at companies and what they're saying, Nike, for example, is reporting that inventories are building up. So eventually you can, you're going to get a price cut there. Columbia Sportswear, same thing there. And a little bit closer to home, when you look at Canadian Tire, they reported unusually high inventory as well. So I think, you know, as we move away from, you know, things like lockdowns, a lot of, you know, companies have been using that just-in-time inventory management. But, you know, as we move away from lockdowns, I think we're going to move away from that inventory management system as well. So I think um, certain areas like energy, we are going to see persistent inflation just because, you know, there is a supply shortage in energy, which has been helped by President Biden kind of releasing the SPRs over the last couple of months, but eventually that will fade. 
food prices eventually will, um, or that's going to become sticky as well, just because of, you know, Ukraine and agriculture prices. But I do think CPI is a little bit backward looking. Unfortunately, the market is overly too focused on that aspect. But, you know, overall, we are starting to see a lot of positive developments in the inflation space, especially in the good side right now. So that's reassuring that you're starting to see signs of uh, price pressures uh, easing up a little bit. So if we shift gears now, um, another piece of big recent news, the Bank of England actually had to backtrack temporarily um, and, and go back towards QE. So do you think that's a sign of potential greater issues at hand and perhaps a tack on question to that? How are you positioning fixed income in a portfolio right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if I have to scan everything, I, and you know, if there are potential systemic risks in the system, that would be it. I remember waking up that morning and just looking at the headlines and thinking, you know, it's a little bit odd that they're moving back to QE, given that you know QE is inflationary, and we want to do the opposite at this point, which is raising rates and you know do quantitative tightening rather than quantitative easing. So, you know, when I took a further look at it, it was more of a bailout because you know just to sum it up shortly. A lot of the pensions in, in the UK, because yields were really low, they essentially had to leverage up bonds in terms of, uh, in order to meet um, liabilities, right? So if you think of, you know, you need a 6% coupon to meet your liabilities, but yields are only yielding 3%, you essentially have to double up or leverage up two times in order to meet those liabilities. So, you know, as the Bank of England started talking about quantitative tightening and rates started going up, that essentially caused a lot of the bonds to trade down and they started to get margin called, which would leave them you know, severely underfunded if that continued. So the Bank of England stepped in to bail out the bonds on the long end of the curve. Right now, I think if we do continue to see that, you know, I would say there's probably other jurisdictions around the world where you know, yields were low all over the world. So there probably is a lot of systemic issues in other parts of the world where that potentially may happen as well. So I think overall, that does show you that there is a limitation in terms of how high rates can go. Um, but in terms of bond portfolio or fixed income positioning, you know, I would overwhelmingly overweight the short end of the curve right now, especially when you look at yield to maturity in the short end is 4.6% on the long end is also 4.6%. Correlation between long bonds and stocks have risen as well. So I would for sure, you know, overweight the short end of the curve over the long end right now. Now, central banks have been making historic moves, um, of course, here in, in the U.S. and in, in Canada, really marking the fastest pace in interest rate hikes uh, you know, in recent history. And last year here in Canada, we got a 50 basis point hike um, from the Bank of Canada. And that sort of led to some, some discussion that you know, maybe we're starting to see a slowdown in, in the pace uh, and the magnitude of hikes. And of course, everybody's waiting with bated breath for this week's Fed meeting. Do you think we're going to see a pause or a slowdown in that trajectory of, of rate hikes at some point soon? Yeah, you know, I think so. I mean, we recently finished up our roadshow. So, I, you know, I, I apologize if you have to listen to my, um, you know, my rant again. Uh, but I, I do think so. I think we are probably going to get a pause really over the, you know, when you raise interest rates, it takes 18 to 24 months for higher interest rates to be, you know, take effect into the economy. So, you know, overall, I think there are positive signs. So when I talk about, you know, the mortgage rates going up and that potentially causing CPI to go up rather than down, you know, look at leading indicators, you know, mortgage demand in the US, for example, the 22 year lows right now. So even below 2008 level. So all of these are good leading indicators that potentially we are starting to see, you know, disinflation start to take place at this point. 
I think the Bank of Canada's move in terms of raising rates 50 basis points rather than 75 uh, was an early indication that central banks potentially are starting to cool down in terms of becoming a little bit less hawkish. Um, but overall, you know, when you compare this cycle compared to 70s and the 1980s, which it oft- often gets compared against, the big difference is that we didn't get the world shut down in the 1970s and 80s, right, which we are right now. So supply is coming back online. Demand is decreasing because of central bank tightening. So that equilibrium, I think, is going to happen a lot sooner than people realize. But I think overall, maybe I'm an equity guy now. And because I'm a little bit more optimistic moving away from bonds, I do think that potentially next year, if we avoid you know, uh, China invading Taiwan, and as long as we don't get these pension blowups on the long end of the curve, I think it should be pretty optimistic for risk assets in general. So that leads me into my next question. You know, for the last several years, there's been many market participants that have sort of been claiming the death of the 60-40 portfolio. And certainly this year in 2022, the performance has been pretty tough with both bond and equity markets down, you know, simultaneously to an extent that we haven't seen since 1969. Um, so in, in the quarterly strategy model, in the balance model, you, you incorporate um, an alternatives or a hybrid bucket into this model. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the overall weight in this bucket. Tell us what you hold. And do you think that this approach should replace that traditional 60-40? Yeah, you know, we've certainly been hearing a lot about that 60-40 portfolio. You know, we've obviously been using that what I call a 50-30-20 model since the inception of the report. So essentially taking 10% allocation, both from equities and bonds, in order to move into this, you know, what I call an alternative bucket. So what we have in there right now is, you know, things like preferred shares, but you could certainly allocate things like gold, um, long short strategies, hedge funds to this bucket as well. Um, that's certainly a model that a lot of pensions and a lot of, you know, what we've been seeing in the family office space do a lot more over the last five years. Um, but in terms of 6040 being dead, you know, if it wasn't dead prior to this year, I think. With bonds and equities being down this year, I think that certainly was the nail in the coffin. But you know, typically you buy bonds because it provides yield, it provides stability. So because it wasn't yielding anything up until you know most recently, a lot of people were just using the equity side of their portfolio to make up for that yield. But because the correlation has really risen in in the last you know couple of months, I would say you know a lot of people have kind of abandoned that 60-40 model. So we like that 50-30-20 model, but I think in the coming years where you know, the yields are starting to come back up in the bond space, um, I think the bond bonds as an asset class are really going to come back over you know, the next couple of years. I think you know when you look at ZIC, which is our midterm U.S. investment grade ETF, yielding 6% right now. So let's say next year when the Fed reaches its neutral rate, ZIC is maybe yielding 7%. Now, I would say at that point, a lot of people would likely overweight bonds at that point. So maybe at that point, we're not just only talking about a 60-40 model, but maybe a 40-60 model where people are going to overwhelmingly favor bonds even over equities at that point. Definitely something to keep an eye on. I mean, we're seeing attractive yields even on cash and cash alternatives now as well um, on, on the very short end of the curve. So numbers that we haven't seen the likes of in, in really over a decade. I mean, we're seeing increased allocation 
to cash and as, as an asset class as well. So by both retail and institutional investors. Um, so Alfred, do you think it's too late for investors to increase their cash weights? Is that something that uh, that people should be considering at this point with, with rates and yields where they're at? I think so. I think at this point, you know, the equity markets are down, you know, if you look at the S&P 500, it's down you know, over 20% at this point. We've, we've certainly got a rally over the uh, last couple of couple of weeks. But if the Fed this week, you know, comes in at 50 basis points rather than 75, um, that potentially will cause the market um, to rally, right? But even at some point next year, you know, we expect the Fed and other central banks, well, most notably the Bank of Canada, to take a pause at some point. So I think that overwhelmingly is going to be good for risk assets in general. Um, obviously, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but I think, you know, when you look at the performance of our model, you know, over, you know, even though we haven't moved to cash because we've been in things like low volatility, um, even though we've been overweight the US, we've beaten our benchmarks slightly, which I think is a good thing. And, and you brought up a few good points over you know, a lot of the meetings that we've done um, during the roadshows is that, if you move to cash and you sit on cash for you know some of the biggest um, trading days of of the year, or you know coming off a of market bottom, that potentially makes a pretty significant um, return difference in your portfolio, um, rather than if you've stayed invested, right? So over the long haul, staying invested usually is the best course of action. And actually, yeah, that's a great piece just to remind our listeners of. If you go to our BMO ETF dashboard on bmoetfs.ca and uh, visit the volatility center section of the dashboard, there are some value-added pieces. And that that is one great piece, actually, that you brought up there, Alfred, the impact of missing the best days in the market. So that's a, a great reminder there. So also, as many of our listeners know, in, in your model, in the balance model, we use a core satellite approach for the equity sleeve, uh, with the core representing about two-thirds of the equity weight overall, and one-third being satellite exposures that uh, we use sector ETFs for. So the, the core of the portfolio, that two-thirds of the equity allocation, is typically made up of low volatility and quality factor ETFs. And, you know, this year, the low volatility ETFs have provided very significant downside protection so far. Um, so that this year has been a very difficult year. But over the long term, they tend to provide market-like returns with a lower risk profile. Um, and Alfred, you use sector ETFs to complement them, so for more tactical plays. And as we've seen valuations, you know, continue to get cheaper what sectors would you say are the most attractively valued right now? Perhaps you could share some of your, your thoughts on uh, on sector opportunities. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think there's three sectors that we have on our radar that we hold in our uh, balanced model right now. So banks, for sure, I would say, you know, are very attractively valued right now, right? So the P ratio is basically a 25% discount to the TSX. So we like that sector, especially with you know, dividends around that 4.8% mark. But when you look at why banks have underperformed over the last couple of months, it's really because you know banks have written up their loan loss provisions, right? But when you look at non-performing loans of the banks, really still very low right now, 30 to 60 basis points, really hasn't increased despite a lot of the doom and gloom with the banks right now. Um, so I would say a lot of that bad news is already priced in um, to the performance of the banks. But even when you look at the banks, I would say you know Canadian banks are probably some of the best businesses in the world, right? Because they have... You know, significant barriers to entry. They're involved with every part of the economy and they're really well or conservatively run in Canada as well. The other sector that we like is REITs. You know, with the REIT space, 
you know, we, we timed it really well last year where we got into the trade in early 2020, you know, rode that trade up. Unfortunately, it's back down again. So I would say we were early on that trade. We were late to sell it. But then again, we're early on that trade again. So I think overall, there certainly are a lot of positives in that sector. When you look at, you know, the industrial and residential REITs, they're certainly still overvalued at this point. But when you look, when you look at the office and retail operators, I would say they're, you know, very undervalued at this point because of the, you know, overhang with a lot of the pandemic lockdowns. People though still don't know in terms of a lot of the office space operators, you know, when they're going to move back to full time. A lot of them are still in hybrid models. But, you know, when I go downstairs to get lunch anecdotally, I've never seen lunch lines this busy before, <laughs> even prior to COVID. So, you know, that is a good sign that, you know, the office space is coming back to to life. But overall, when you look at the REIT space, you know, the sector is starting to become very attractively valued at this point. I wouldn't say it's a screaming buy. It's certainly something to put on the radar. And last but not least, I would say the energy space, oil and gas, you know, through something like our ZEO, um, our oil and gas ETF. I think, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a, a screaming buy from an attractive, you know, from a valuation standpoint. But when you look at, you know, how they're situated right now, they're starting to see a huge buildup in cash. They can invest in infrastructure because they know the, the governments want to move to sustainable energy. Because of that, you know, the only play for them is to increase their dividends. So we, we like oil. We like energy. You know, I think oil prices have been depressed because uh, President Biden has been releasing a lot of these strategic petroleum reserves, the SPRs, uh, to you know suppress oil prices for you know a lot of the consumers. We don't know whether that's going to continue after the midterms, but at some point he's going to run out, and at that point he's going to have to you know refill that reserve, which is going to place you know even more demand um, on oil. So overall. You know, we like the energy space, but overall, I would say those are the three sectors to keep an eye on right now. Thanks, Alfred. Those are some pretty good points. Um, I would also just maybe quickly add on another point to the sector exposures. You know, I've been having a lot of discussions recently on tax loss selling. Um, you know, clients maybe that are holding some individual names and uh, the REITs uh, that just reminded me, actually, and even even the equal weight banks, um, you know, a lot of clients, what they're doing is maybe taking advantage of, of some losses in the portfolio, harvesting those and replacing individual names um, with those sector ETFs. So that's uh, maybe just another thought to keep in mind. We've also recently published our uh, tax loss selling guide for 2022. So that's also available on our dashboard. Um, another area that people have been using um, tax loss selling that I wanted to maybe just uh, add in as an, as an end note here is um, using the discount bond ETF. So Alfred, in your model, I mean, as part of the core of the, the fixed income, uh, you've been using ZDB, which is the more tax efficient cousin ETF to the, the aggregate bond ETF, our ZAG. Uh, so I did want to highlight that as, as a point to keep in mind. So people that are holding traditional bond exposures might want to consider uh, harvesting tax losses there and moving into the, the discount bond equivalent. So we do have that tax loss selling guide that we just published, uh, I believe, last week. So that's available also on our on our ETF dashboard. Um, so thanks, Alfred. Really appreciate you walking us through your models. Always insightful. You brought up some great points to consider. Um, and just to close things off today, this has been the BMO ETFs quarterly strategy podcast. You can find us every quarter on Spotify, on Apple, and also on the BMO Canadian ETF dashboard, which is bmoetfs.ca. Thanks again for joining us, Alfred. Thanks, Erica. My pleasure.
The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. ETF Market Insights has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.